At this time, we're going to turn our attention to the reading and preaching of God's Word, and you've got a, a special treat for you this morning. Uh, many of you know Brian, who's been interning with us for the past, what, year-ish? Year-ish, we'll say. Brian and his wife Paula made the transition o- over here. Um, and this morning, they're going to continue to take us through the book of Galatians. And to help us with that, uh, the reading of it, Philip. Galatians five twenty-five to 6, 5. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the past few months, we've been going through the book of Galatians, and now we're at the end of it, and we're wrapping up this book with the next few verses. In these verses, we'll see today... Paul is showing us the application of a spirit-filled life. If you're a Christian, this is how you live because you have the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, he's given to you because you believe in the gospel message, the message of of Jesus Christ. And Paul shows us that by believing in the gospel message, two profound things happen. One, it changes how we see ourselves. And two, it changes how we act to others. So our two points today, the gospel way of how we see ourselves and the gospel way of how we act to others. And to show us the gospel way of how we see ourselves, Paul, he starts with telling us what not to do. In verse 26, he says, do not be conceited. Don't have a false sense of pride of who you are, because when you think more highly of yourself, it changes how you act to others. Read chapter 5, verse 26 with me. Let us not be conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The original meaning behind the word conceit is a combination of two words. Keno, doxis, empty glory. Paul is saying, don't pretend that you have glory when there's nothing there. As Torontonians, do we get the idea of conceit? Does it resonate with us? Do people of Toronto pretend like we have glory when there's nothing there? Let me ask you. Have you ever been to a conference and they do shout-outs to different cities? Oh, Toronto. And you're like, yeah. And you're like, wait a minute. Why did you put your hand up? You're from Hamilton. You're not from Toronto. Don't, 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 don't put your hand up. That's a, couple, that's a couple hours away. That's not the city. 
Or let me ask you, if you live downtown, how do you think about people who live in the suburbs? Oh, Markham? I'm not a, I'm not a Markham person. Scarborough? Oh, mm-mm. that's not happening. See, these are small examples of this empty glory that we have in ourselves. But let me ask you, when was the last time you were on LinkedIn and you see someone you know, they might be younger than you, and they just got that senior position you've been considering. They just got a job at at the dream company that you've always wanted. You end up spending the next 15 minutes just going through their profile, sizing yourself up to them. What? How old are they? Where did they go to school? What do they have that I don't have? Because I think I'm pretty good. And there's two reasons why we think this way. The first reason, we're proud. We're proud in who we are. We think we're better than them. We think that because of the school we went to, because of the experience that I have, that I'm more qualified. I am better than them. And the second way we think this way is because we're envious. We're envious. We think we're better than them. And because of the pride in who we are, we're better. I deserve this. I deserve this role. I am better So therefore, it should be mine. We do this because our culture defines value in two ways, right? Our output, our ability. How much revenue did you contribute in Q3 and Q4? What graduate program did you come from? How far are you to accomplishing your targets, your goals, your KPIs. Our culture is based on achievements, badges of honor that we add to our LinkedIn profiles, that we add to our resumes, and we quietly think we're better than others. And then we publicly compare and contrast ourselves. It's a culture of pride and comparison. I mean, no matter how hard HR departments try to deal with this toxic culture, it's far beyond company policy. It's far beyond certain events and and training because it's how our world is run. Pride in comparison. Why do you think we see people trample? walk all over, throw each other under the bus to get ahead. Because this is our culture. And before getting to the gospel solution, I want us to look at what culture tells us is their solution. What's culture solution? Culture tells us, find fulfillment in yourself. If you know who you are, if you make yourself happy and fulfill your deepest desires, that must be it. Because you know who you are. You don't need to compare. Here's the problem with that. 
Mimetic theory is an idea developed by a 20th century philosopher, René Girard. He explains that we want things because other people want them. What human desire, it's not our own. Instead, it's a collective. This is why marketing departments exist. You ever order something from a restaurant and you're excited for it, but the moment you see another dish go by, that someone else would, oh, I want that. I, I hate that. I hate that feeling. <laughs> if this theory is true, is fulfillment going to cut it? Is it going to deal with our pride and comparison? No. It's not. Because if self-fulfillment just leads us back to the infinite loop of ge- this game of pride and comparison... What are we going to do? How long are you going to keep pretending that you've always got it together? Are you tired of feeling like you're a failure because you're not at the top? And even if you are at the top and, and, and you've got it together, You've got to work to the bone. You've got to work so hard and you can't stop because you can't let anyone else get ahead of you. Let's look at the gospel solution to our pride. In chapter 5, verse 25, Paul shows us how to deal with pride and what this means It needs something that's external of us. It needs the Holy Spirit. Look at this verse with me, 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Paul shows us that as Christians, we have the Spirit. We have to continue this lifestyle in the Spirit because, if you're a Christian, because you have the Holy Spirit... There's heart change. Your, your, your thinking, your motivations, they're transformed. Ezekiel 36, 26 describes how a new heart and spirit is given to you. Jeremiah 31, 33 describes God placing a new law in your mind, in your heart. True, genuine gospel belief leads to heart and motivation change. It shapes us. It molds us. We go from falling into this culture of pride and comparison to seeing ourselves as something. We see ourselves as nothing in the gospel. Paul explains this idea of nothingness. Chapter 6, verse 3. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing. He deceives himself. Remember that that empty glory that we talked about? When we are proud, we fool ourselves because there's nothing there. And this idea of nothingness is actually a reoccurring theme that Paul actually uses for himself. This is Paul we're talking about. I mean, he's not nothing. This is the great man 
one of the, one of the apostles. He wrote most of the books of the New Testament Bible, and you're telling me he's nothing? What does Paul mean when he calls himself the worst of sinners in 1 Timothy 1.15? What does it mean for Paul to call himself the least of the apostles in 1 Corinthians 15.9? It's this. Paul knows he's nothing because he always and only attributes his success to the grace of God within him. So let's look at what this grace of God is. Let's look at what it means to be nothing. And to do that, we need to look and see who Jesus Christ is in the gospel. The gospel message of Jesus Christ is the historic and objective account of who Jesus is, who he claimed to be, that he became God's grace for us. Jesus did two important things that I want to mention today, and one in his death. The punishment you deserve for your sin and your brokenness, the ways you've hurt others, the things you try so hard to hide that you wouldn't tell anyone. That sin is placed on Christ. And the second thing I want to highlight is Jesus' perfect obedience to God's law and his divine sacrifice that was his life. Christ's righteousness becomes yours. A, per, a great exchange has happened as 2 Corinthians 5.21 describes, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ's righteousness is imputed onto you. What that means is it's like placing a royal robe on a filthy criminal. Do you see the nothing that Paul speaks of? In the gospel, Christ's righteousness is given as a gift. And have you done, have you done anything to deserve this gift? No. You've done absolutely nothing. And because of his righteousness, if you have faith in who Jesus is, God sees you as he sees his son, Christ. He sees you as his child. We offer God nothing, yet he adopts us. As one writer puts it, it's an identity that is not achieved, but received. September 18th, 3.03 p.m., my daughter, Nora Grace Lee, came into the world. Honestly, coming up to it, I was an anxious wreck. I would ask myself, how am I going to do this? What kind of father will I be? How am I going to provide for her 
Why did I quit my steady marketing job? To start a new career, to be an intern at a church. What was I thinking? And these ideas, they floated in my mind as I tossed and turned. I couldn't sleep. And I wish I could tell you that I was excited. I wasn't. If I said I was excited, I mean, sure, but I'd be lying to you because I was probably more scared than anything else. And when she finally got here, the first two months were terrible, right? (laughs) Sleep is non-existent. Everything is new. What, what, What is going on? And let's be honest. Let's be honest, right? She's a baby. What does a baby add to my life? I mean, you know, pragmatically. She's actually making it harder. What did I I get myself into? As one of my friends put it, and I forget who it was, it's someone at the church, they said that this is a logistical nightmare. (laughs) All the parents are like, amen, brother. (laughs) But even though Nora does absolutely nothing for me, I can without a doubt tell you that I love her. I love her so much, right? Those anxious thoughts, those 3 a.m. diaper changes, the constant crying, the logistical nightmare that is parenthood, those thoughts got quieter. She's my daughter. My love for her outweighs all of those things and the fact that she offers me nothing doesn't change anything for my love for her. And that's when I realized that when God looks at us as his children, this is what it means. You offer God nothing, yet he completely loves you. And this nothingness, this nothingness is a form of God's unconditional grace in the gospel. I thought I knew unconditional love, right? I love my wife unconditionally. But Paula, you, you know, she scratches my back, I scratch hers. But again, little baby Nora is absolutely nothing for me. Yet I completely love her. In the same way, grace is given to us. Not because we offer God anything, but, but because what Christ has done for you. Do you get this? And it's this love from the Father that as Christians we find fulfillment. It's, it's the idea that it's nothing on your part, but it means everything to you. And it means something to you because you get to know this loving and gracious God. And from this love, this pride and comparison changes. Because we know we offer God nothing, we have a new perspective. We can accurately see who we are. Look at chapter 6, verse 4 and 5 with me. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. 
See, from this sense of nothingness, we are commanded to examine ourselves, test ourselves. If there's any progress, any progress in you, you take pride in that. Does this make sense? How can we be nothing, yet we are told to boast in ourselves? How does this work? What scholars believe Paul is saying is that if you have the Spirit, you, because you have the Spirit, you now can truly progress in being loving and being kind and being joyful and being patient. Philippians 2, 12 to 13 describes the process as working out your salvation with a deep respect for God because he's working in you. By giving you the power of the Holy Spirit, you can change, and that comes from God. This is the reality of the Christian life. It should be hard work. It should take self-sacrifice, self-denial, humility, asking for forgiveness, repentance. And by doing these things, we grow. And this boasting that Paul speaks of, it recognizes personal progress, but at the same time it knows that that progress is only possible because of the Spirit in you. Ask yourselves, if you're a Christian, ask yourselves, am I being less angry? Am I becoming less angry than I was last year, last month? Am I less passive-aggressive to my coworkers, my boss, my wife? Am I becoming more patient with my kids? And if there's even a hint of progress, take pride in that. Take self-pride in that because that means that you've worked hard and that the Spirit is working in you and only by the Spirit is this possible. And so this comparison game of, of, of pride and comparison, it changes because it's the idea that you're on your own journey while others are on theirs. They might be going through a lush forest and you might be going through the desert. But here's the thing. You're progressing. You're making your way forward together. You're headed towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ as described in Philippians 3, 14. So now we've seen how to see ourselves in the gospel, let's move on to see the gospel way of how to act to others. The gospel way of how we act to others is in two ways. One, it's gentle restoration. And two, it's sharing and suffering. So really quickly, the gospel way of how we act to others is gentle restoration and sharing and suffering. Read chapter 1, verse Uh, Sorry, read chapter 6, verse 1 with me. Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourselves, lest you too be tempted. I mean, look how Paul refers to the Galatians. He first says, brothers. Paul is trying to show us that we have God our Father and we are brothers and sisters that look out for one another as a family. Secondly, he refers to the Galatians, sorry, he refers to the Galatians as you who are spiritual. This is why this is important to us today. 
It's because he's saying, you there, you with the Holy Spirit, do this. Do what I'm telling you to do. He's commanding those with the Holy Spirit to restore one another, to mend one another. The word he uses for restore is the same word as fixing a fishnet, right? Rehabilitate one another. If someone falls and slips, help fix them up and not in a harsh manner, but in a gentle, loving way because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. At the end of the verse, right, he says, look out. Make sure you don't slip up like they've slipped out. Slip-ups are inevitable in the Christian life. We are not perfect now, but we should be progressing in maturing and holiness. And on this journey, when slip-ups do happen, we are commanded to pick each other up from a place of humility because we know you've got your own temptations. You've got your own weaknesses. Look out for that. But it takes a collective effort. It's teamwork. You ever find a really good deal? You know, as Canadians, we have something called redflagdeals.com. No? Maybe? It's a site just for Canadian deals. I mean, it's a big deal in our culture. At least I think it is. And talking about deals, I'm a big fan of Costco. I've got their credit card. You know, I'm serious. I'm not that serious, but I really enjoy Costco because you can find some good deals. And if Costco is not your thing, I get it. You're from downtown Toronto. Costco is like the farthest thing in the world. Let's say you found a really good deal, right, at Uniqlo. Uh, yeah, okay, yeah, I'm feeling okay. You found a really good deal at Uniqlo, and you just can't say no to that deal. So in my case, right, I'm going through Costco, going through the aisles, I almost get hit by some lady's cart, and I see before me massive bags of pistachios. You know the ones I'm talking about? The ones without the shell, like they're shellless, salted options, unsalted options. It's 70 off. 70% off? That, that's, that's a good deal. What I'm going to do, I'm going to get a couple bags for myself, get a couple bags for my family. I'm going to go on that group chat with my friends, take a photo of the price sheet, say, hey, good deal, good deal. If a deal is too good to be true, we want to share this with others, don't we? And at the simplest form, I think this shows the heart of the motivation of restoring one another in gentleness. It's a motivation that says, let's do this together. I'm not leaving you behind. What's ahead of us? It's too good. We can't let go of that. Gently restore one another. Pick one another up. So the first way the gospel shows us how to act to others is that we gently restore one another. The second way the gospel shows us how to act to others is to carry the weight of suffering with one another. Share in suffering. Read chapter 6, verse 2 with me. 
Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I'll read that again. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Paul's second instruction to us is to share the difficult parts of life. The word burden is often translated as hardship. These are the difficult things, the hard things, the things that are awkward and take time, attention, and care. Share these things. Don't just say, oh, I'm going to pray for you, and, and you, know, you don't pray about it, but do something about it. Do something about it. This is important to us, too, because Paul says that it fulfills the law of Christ. The law of Christ. This is the first and only place in the New Testament that Paul uses this phrase. So what does it mean? To fulfill the law of Christ means it references the many times that Jesus commanded his followers to love one another. To love one another includes sharing and suffering. It means being inconvenienced, having our comforts disrupted for the sake of those around us. This is what it means to fulfill what Christ wants us to do. This is a command. You are required to do this as a Christian. It's a requirement. So what does this look like? Sunday morning. Maybe just before service or right after or during coffee, someone tells you that they just lost their job. Be proactive about it. Try to meet up with them. Go for lunch with them. Not just once, but multiple times. If you've got a network, connect them with your former managers, your former colleagues, your friends. Keep up with them. Encourage them because it gets pretty lonely. Commit to pray with them and really pray. Or you've learned that someone is struggling with mental health. That can be a lonely journey. Spend time with them. Encourage them as they seek help or help them find people to speak to. If, you, if they don't have a car, drive them to their appointments. Give them space when they need it. And don't be offended when they need that space. Commit to pray for them. you're the one that's suffering right now this command is for you too be willing to ask for help I understand it's hard and it takes humility and vulnerability but self-sufficiency can be a form of pride too speak to those right beside you if you're a part of our grace gatherings our small groups talk to them Right down here below this balcony, we have a team of people that are here to pray with you, to talk to you, to figure out how as a community we can help. Share the hard things with one another. So the gospel way of how we act to others is to restore one another gently and to share in suffering with one another. Listen. Grace Toronto Church. You need to do this. I'm just an intern. But this is Paul in the power of the Holy Spirit commanding you to restore one another gently. 
to bear each other's burdens. It will take your precious time. It will be an inconvenience. It will disrupt you. But this is what we're commanded to do. And I'm going to say this. If you've been at this church for quite some time and you haven't been inconvenienced for the sake of others, you have to ask yourself, is that your pride? Have you been treating Grace Toronto Church like a social club? If that's you, you need to go to Christ. You need to repent because Christ is where you'll find complete restoration. Christ will take the burdens of your sin even though you offer him nothing. And if you're seeking or questioning Christianity, if you're tired of our culture's game of pride and comparison, find rest in this loving and gracious God. I want to directly invite you Consider Christ. Consider what he did on the cross. And join our community. As a church, we are far from perfect. But we will not give up on what Paul has told us to do today. And lastly, Christians of Grace Toronto Church, you have the Holy Spirit. Know who you are in the gospel. Let's restore one another in gentleness. Let's bear one another's burdens because this is the gospel way to life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a privilege it is that we can call you our Father, that I can pray with my brothers and sisters that we get to do life and it's not alone. Help us, God. May your spirit work in us. Remind us, Lord, of what Christ has done. Remind us, Lord, that we offer nothing. And thank you, God, that your grace is free and that this journey is not alone, but we do it together. So help us, God. We love you, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. As we go now to the Lord's table, we're reminded that this game of pride and comparison that we've heard talked about this morning, uh, it has no place at this table. When you consider what this table means... Uh, it means in many ways the opposite of that game, where we are prone to getting caught up in elevating ourselves over others and belittling others around us and inviting those to our tables who are like us and who will do well, good things for us. Uh, Christ, Christ has a different pattern and extends a different kind of welcome at his table. His welcome is not just to those who are nice to him, are kind to him, who don't inconvenience him, don't... Uh, don't bother him. His welcome extends to all. Uh, his welcome is to you and to me. Those who have wronged him, sinned against him, seen him crucified, 
and yet from the cross extends his welcome. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so at this time, we go to the table of grace. It was on the night that Jesus was to be betrayed that he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. A little later, and in much the same way, he took the cup and said, This cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul reminds us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. The way we do this at Grace Toronto, uh, we invite all baptized believers to participate in this meal with us. It's Christ's meal. He invites all of you to this table. And so we ask you to come uh, and come and receive from the Lord, his own body broken for us that we might be fed on him, his blood poured out that we might live. All of the bread is gluten-free, the wine is red, and the grape juice isn't. I'll pray, and the table will be open. Our Father, we thank you for your grace extended to us, your radical welcome extended to us through Christ, who's come and lived for us and died for us and has been raised for us, that we might have hope in him. As we eat this bread together and drink of the cup, we do ask that you would commune with us, that we would know your care for us, your forgiveness. You are welcome. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. The table is now open.